You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we acknowledge the soul that's actually driving civilization and challenge the soullessness that's masquerading as our collective welfare. There's no top-down solution to the problems of top-down control. Authority is authoritarian. People are potential. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, political economist and the author of Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice, Jessica Gordon-Nembard. The saddest part of all this is how alienated we've become from solidarity economics and cooperative economics. We're so alienated from the concepts. We've got to just remake ourselves more comfortable again. Jessica will be showing us how black communities already developed the circular economic mechanisms that the rest of us need to dig out from under the repressive weight of exploitation. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, we're in the thick of it now, eh? Politics, pandemic, and even personal crises abound. Like many of you, I've got more than the usual number of friends in distress, and what feels like more than the usual number are getting sick, passing away. Last week, my friend Joanna Harcourt-Smith succumbed to cancer, and the team here unearthed a special recording from the archive that I made with her about 12 years ago to release as a bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. Joanna was a writer and psychedelics activist, most famous for the years she spent in exile in Europe and Africa with Timothy Leary. You can hear that conversation and other gems from the archive by becoming a supporter of Team Human at any level. You'll also get free stuff, access to our Discord community, and access to our live events when we go back on the road. Join new members like Squee, Raul Abrego, Jeff Newelt, Morbius, and Matthew Vandermeer, and keep Team Human alive. Hopefully, I don't have to say this, but whether or not you think democracy is functional, you really should vote. Think of it as a form of civil disobedience, especially in places where they're actively repressing your access to the polls. It's not fun, and it's a long wait, but it is a chance to get outside and maybe see some people, and it's a whole lot easier than an armed insurrection later. All that said, I admit it, electoral politics is broken, for sure. I've been invited this year by Medium to do all sorts of election commentary, real headline stuff, but it's been really tough to watch all this. It all kind of peaked for me during the second debate between Biden and Trump. Everybody was talking about the second debate like it was so much better than the first, but to me, that's kind of like saying having a stroke is better than suffering a heart attack because it's quieter. It, it's not. I mean, merely, merely turning on the TV felt a bit like subjecting myself to a late season of Jerry Springer or The Apprentice when the thrill of getting to see something horrific and vulgar no longer really titillates. It's like the nerve endings capable of responding to it are just fried to a crisp. The 
bizarre reality show that's been masquerading as democratic process for the past four years. It now feels less like must-see TV than an obligatory death vigil. And I think the debates themselves are either part of the problem or maybe they're almost the whole problem. You know, debates are not some historic thing. They are a television thing. The Lincoln-Douglas debates that they teach us about in school, they were over a Senate seat. And each candidate spoke for an hour uninterrupted. Now, the first presidential debates, they were in 1960. It was a televised event, a television event, where JFK soundly beat Nixon, according to TV viewers, but lost soundly to Nixon, according to radio viewers. That should have been a hint that there's something wrong going on. And the two forms, right, TV and presidential debates, they've been kind of co-evolving ever since. As TV drives towards spectacle and sensationalism, so too do the debates. And once TV surrendered fully to reality TV, so did the presidential debates. What Trump accomplished in the Republican primaries in 2016 was like an episode of Survivor, and we all watched it happen. It had nothing to do with policies or governance and everything to do with name-calling, ratings, frustration, and doing whatever outrageous thing gets you on the news afterwards. Like Neil Postman in Amusing Ourselves to Death, I am officially blaming television and the television industry for our political woes. You know, while all they care about is ratings and sensationalism, they pretend they've created some sort of balanced stage. The, the moderator at that debate was saying, Mr. Biden, you have two minutes to answer the same question, as if that constitutes some kind of a fairness, even though the two candidates wielded those two-minute intervals very, very differently. The most honest moment of the debate, the truest to the television environment anyway, was when Trump deconstructed Biden's style of delivery. Trump had just made a whole bunch of accusations about Biden's family taking money from Russia and Ukraine. And then Biden looked straight in the camera and said, you know who I am, you know who he is. And then Trump reframed the media moment. He explained that whenever Biden looks in the camera, he's playing the role of a corrupt politician, as if to defuse Biden's one TV superpower. It was the snarky meta-theatrics of reality TV, played by Trump, trying to take down the earnest, I feel you, kumbaya of traditional television. And the sad part to me is how hard the news channels in this increasingly sensationalist and ratings-driven environment, they try to make it look like they're still doing their job, presenting balanced, fact-based programming when they're airing these things, which they never did. The polished, direct-to-camera, kumbaya style of TV politics is no more real than Trump's reality TV. It's just older, more traditional, more kind of Oprah Winfrey, free to be you and me. Now, the whole thing, the whole debate is a waste of time and energy, and it ends up eliminating the most effective leaders from contention. I mean, I know there's real issues that need to be discussed and engaged with, but having the candidates 
battle their ideas out in real time on TV doesn't seem like the way to educate voters on their positions. It's a very particular game that they're playing on TV, and it has almost no application if one of them gets the job. The debate structure itself, it enables and legitimizes the the untethering of civic discourse from on-the-ground reality. Televised debates were never really much more than a novelty, a platform for candidates to hit each other with fresh zingers. And if it's gotten to the point where those of us who care about government and our collective future only watch in order to make sure nothing too terrible happens, well, it means it's time to accept debates do more harm than good. It's my honor to bring you a scholar who I found in my quest to document grassroots efforts at Cooperative Economics. She's a professor of community justice and social economic development in the Department of Africana Studies at John Jay College and a political economist specializing in community economics, black political economy, and popular economic literacy. Her new book, Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice, rocked my world. Please meet my new friend, Jessica gordon Nembhard. Well, hi. It's so great to see your face. <laughs> Wonderful to meet you. Yeah, and you. I so admire your work. I found it maybe the way a lot of people have. You know, I've been an advocate for cooperative strategies and local currencies and all that stuff since the early 2000s. And I had gotten called in. I was trying to think of when it was. I had gotten called in by some division of the World Economic Forum in Manhattan. And I thought, this is it, my chance. I'm going to get to talk at Davos, right? So I go in this room with all these people around this table, maybe 30 of them with little pads, and they're hearing from me, like for the first time, about local currencies and cooperative economics and what's the commons. Oh, I thought it was something the Pope did. You know, it's like crazy stuff. So I'm talking about all these things. And then this woman, a very educated, smart, well-meaning, like United Nations kind of World Bank woman said, well, all of these things you're talking about, these co-op, co-ops and food buying and collective strategies, they're nice and good for the elite white cultural creatives of the Northeast. But how would real inner city urban people be able to deal with this kind of stuff? And it was not even code for, oh, but this is too hard for black people. And all I had at the time was Don't you know what happened in Philadelphia in the 1960s and the 1970s? Don't you know what the Black Panthers were doing? Don't you know what cooperative education is? What the f***? But I didn't have enough. So that's what set me to look for who's done this other than than W.B.E.B. Du Bois. Who has really looked at it in a way? And there you were with Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice, which was... I can't stress what an important work this is on so many different levels and how grateful I am that you did this, a kind of scholarly research that I don't have the stamina to do, where you found like 
the records of a church and who gave 35 cents to this one and it was like oh my gosh just the the the, the beauty of that the, that act of research is enough just to be happy for but the result of it which is proof that um, this is not only not too hard for black people to figure out but we got it from black people I guess I would I would love to know I guess first what got you started on this inquiry you know and and then were you surprised by how much you found Thank you so much and thanks for that introduction I wanted to um open us up by bringing in our ancestors especially my ancestors those whose shoulders I stand on I also always like to acknowledge uh, the original stewards of the land and have us remember that we're still living in colonial space. So thank you for having me. Mm. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk with you about this. I started the way we all start. I started with who do I know who's been thinking about this already? I actually had grown up in a, an intentional community, so I understood co-ops as sort of intentional communities. I understood what a food co-op was, but I hadn't really thought of the broad spectrum of co-ops as an alternative development strategy. If you really want to think about it, there was a level of economic cooperation among the blacks on the slave ships when they were um, mutinying, right? Because it, they were economic, they were commodities. <laughs> they were, uh, it was an economic situation that they were in, right? Being taken from their homeland to be traded as commodities. They were also economic, because they were economic beings. They didn't even own their own bodies. So it's property declaring it that it owns itself. Right, right, <laughs> right. And saying, you can't do this to us and you can't dehumanize us. So in that sense, and that took co cooperation, right? Right. If one person gets up and does it alone, they're just going to get shot. Right. So that, you know, so if you want to think about it that way, we can start from there. And also we know that lots of most early civilizations, especially early African civilizations, early First Nations here in North America, all used cooperation, collectivism, cooperation from very early on. So it's not that anybody invented it or started it. It's more that we all continued to use economic cooperation for survival and then for liberation. And so that's how I've been trying to think about it and look at it. So then we also, Du Bois was another one who led me to say, you know, even the Underground Railroad, which again, we thought of as kind of a political and physical, maybe a social thing, but it also, is, it was economic cooperation. Because if you think about it, right, aside from the fact, again, that enslaved people who were running away were commodities, but also the people that were helping them, right, had to were sharing economics, right? They, somebody had to have a wagon with enough hay in it. Somebody else had to have a house with a basement that you could hide in. Other people were providing food. So these are economic shared economic relationships. Right. And others were were sharing the information about what this network was. Exactly. And to get people out of places where they were enslaved to places where they wouldn't weren't enslaved, right? Or were less enslaved. <laughs> yeah. Less enslaved, right. <laughs> so that's what made me start thinking about this whole broad notion. There's a universalism of economic cooperation. There's a universalism of solidarity economics, right? No one group has a monopoly on it. Um, really, if you search whole human history, right, basically every people's, every era of history, we've used it, but we've started focusing more on it, right? The Europeans focused more on it by the 1800s. 
Um, other groups have focused on it in different ways. And then with the Solidarity Economy Movement, again, what, from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, we started focusing on it again as a worldwide movement of people reasserting themselves against neoliberalism. Which is why it's interesting for, for those of us in modern times, you know, we could read a book like Collective Courage and see these, oh, look at this great invention of one person's going to get out of slavery, raise money to come back, and then get the next one out. What a terrific new idea, right. where in some ways, I, what you're saying is that extractive corporate capitalism was the new idea. Right. It's exactly. like the extant natural, if you want to use a word like that, natural human condition is of sharing resources, treating things as commons, cooperating, food sharing was our, our evolutionary history. And then there's this interruption in the late Middle Ages of chartered monopolies going out, taking people over, enslaving brown people and, and, and stealing all their resources. So when the slaves came they were from a civilization. It's not like they were blank slates. They right. came with a civilizational bias towards mm -hmm. collaborative, mm -hmm. cooperative economic solutions. Right. And they continued to practice them as best they could, even though, as we said, they didn't own their own bodies. They were separated by language, right? So they weren't allowed to be with other people who spoke their same language, Right. So there were all kinds of barriers that capitalism and so, uh, enslavement put in place, but they still managed to not succumb to it as much as possible. So, right. So they would get intentionally separated. So you would. not Oh, yes. The slaveholders and the slave traders would not. They totally separated. They wouldn't put people who spoke the same language. They wouldn't even chain them together in the boats. They made sure that you couldn't communicate or they thought. <laughs> right, that they that you couldn't communicate at all, and that was deliberate because they didn't. They thought that would stop the colluding and the collaboration, but of course it didn't stop it. It might have slowed it down and made it a little bit harder. But there were very deliberate ways. That also, if you look in the sociology psychology, there are deliberate ways of denigrating each other. Right, they denigrated the uh, African men to the African women. They denigrated the lighter skin to the darker skin. They denigrated the religion, different religions, so that they kept everybody fighting and distrusting each other as much as they could, but they still couldn't stop some of the colluding. I think part of the narrative that I've had wrong, I think, that is just changing for me now, is I've always seen it as, like, when things get bad enough, people turn toward cooperative economics. I was looking like at the two, uh, 2007 market crash and saying, ah, if things had only gotten a few notches worse and they hadn't been able to bail out Goldman, then people would have rediscovered cooperative economics and local currencies and all these things. But you're kind of not saying that. I mean, on a certain level, it looks to me like, wow, the worse black people were treated, the more they were separated, the more they were forced to develop these alternative methods of sharing. But I think you're arguing that, no, it's not that they were forced. It's that these were almost the more natural, spontaneous modes. And human, right? That's the other thing I wanted to say when you were talking about how, right, capitalism is the new thing. The other thing that was new about capitalism is that it it separated our humanness from our economic. So it separated whatever they call it, homo economicus from human beings, mm. right? And they started saying to be an economic player, you have to forget about your humanness, right? If you think about it, you know, just going to work and all that stuff, we have to 
kind of I sometimes talk about we leave our human humanity at the door, right? And we accept all these dehumanizing ways to work just because we need the check. We allow ourselves to be hierarchically managed when that's not natural, right? We don't do it at home, right? I mean, we sort of do it at home because we're forced to spend most of our waking hours doing it at work. But our natural proclivity wouldn't be to act that way at home. No, and then we look down. We look down on maybe sex workers, and it's like, well, right. this is no different. We're all surrendering our body to right. the man, right? And so, for me, when I started to understand this and look at this, then you could see, right? Actually, also the social forum movement and the solidarity economy movement helped me see this. There's acts that we do every day as human beings that are actually economic solidarity but it's often invisible or in the informal economy. All the caring that we do, there's caring economics that we do that, that's not included in the formal economy, but it's all solidarity. Barter that we do every day with each other, with our neighbors, right? I'll take your kids to school. Right. You pick up sugar for me at the grocery store. I mean, that's all solidarity economics, but we forget. We don't call it that because right now all we know of economics is this cutthroat, you know, hierarchical, exploitative stuff. And so we forget what economics really is. And that's the other piece I think that's so important here to see, yes, in crises we do. It is true that there are more co-ops in all communities during crises, but it's also true that it's not because there's nothing else and so we have to do it for survival, but it's also because crises force us to go back to what's human, right? Because that's all that we have left, right? In crises, we're stripped of everything else, but we're still human. And so we go back to the things that make us human. And the the irony, of course, that keeps happening again and again in, in the story that you tell over the, over the two or 300 years of that story is these human-based lateral cooperative economies end up being way more prosperous <laughs> than the other ones. So it's like the story, it's like this joke almost that you keep telling in there. It's like, okay, so this black community was utterly cut off. They weren't allowed to have jobs. They weren't allowed to join the union. They weren't allowed to do this. They had to stay here. So they turned to each other, created these, these economies based in the, in the velocity of money and the velocity of transactions. They start prospering and getting movie theaters and churches and they're doing better than the neighboring town of white people who are allowed to participate in the big economy. And then the white people go and riot and tear up right. the stuff that tear they've got. Or, right. There's a range of sabotage in almost every situation between banks not giving you a line of credit, insurance companies upping your insurance to lynching the co-op leaders, burning down the co-op buildings. So that whole range, uh, especially every time we got... Uh, successful, but even sometimes the ones that weren't that successful just to stop them because they don't want the example, right? And they don't want the competition. And this is not just the South where everybody thinks it's the South that was so horrible. These things happen in the North everywhere in the U.S. Um, And then the saddest part about that sort of sabotage history is that that led a lot of African Americans to either think we couldn't do it and so not, you know, not want to try again and not tell their children about it because they were embarrassed when it really wasn't even our fault that something, you know, failed or wasn't successful. Even after like 20 years, we don't want to talk about it because we feel like it was a failure and we don't have the 
the language to talk about the sabotage, or we do it so quietly, we stop even calling it a cooperative, we stop calling it collaboration because we don't want anyone to notice what we're doing to sabotage us. And so because of that, we also don't think, right, we don't pass on the legacy, we don't think we're doing it. Right. Because then when people come with the terminology, they're like, no, 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 we don't do that, right? But we don't do that because we had to protect ourselves. We had to stop talking about it and bringing attention to it. Right. And there were really two periods where I noticed you talked about that. One was the way that so much mutual aid happened through the church, which was both effective because it it's already part of giving in a church, but it was also the church was stealth, you know, so you could do mutual aid. No one's looking at a church as if it's a bank, right. but they were really, right. they were functioning almost like credit unions do. Right. Often. Right. So the church, the fraternal organizations, sometimes the black independent school. So groups that were already, one already had trust, already were organized, but could do it but you didn't know, right? They didn't have to say they were doing that because they were doing five other things and they didn't have to talk about the co-op stuff they were doing. And that way they were protected from the sabotage, but it meant the kids didn't really know, right? They knew they went to church and they knew maybe their parents got a little loan from the church one day, but they didn't realize that the church was doing a credit union or some kind of credit exchange. They didn't realize that their parent, right? And I got that a lot when I first started talking about this in black communities. When I would first talk about co-ops and cooperation, everybody would say, no, 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 no. By the time I finished my talk and explained and gave some examples, then I would have people coming up after my talk or raising a question. At the end, oh, my aunts and uncles were in. I guess it was a co-op. I didn't realize it. My grandparents started this farm thing, and now I realize that was a co-op, right? So the la- right. also the language has been a barrier, but mostly because the language was protection. It was, you know, and I didn't realize my dad was in that. They got their funeral. I mean, they're part of a little Jewish group. They were poor. Right. And they had their funeral plots were taken care of. And it was like, oh, so that wasn't a club. You know, (laughs) that was people taking care because no one had the money when someone died. to, to Right. That's mutual aid. Most of the mutual aid societies started with burial societies. Yeah. Because especially, you know, ethnic racial groups cared about how their people were buried and needed some way to make sure it was done the way, right, they went down the way they, you know, their culture wanted the burials to happen. Right. Plus, it's at that stage when it's, you know, an old woman and her husband's dead, everyone's heart's going out right. to that. It's like, right. this is the least we could do as a community is is pay for that, you know, so let's codify it, let's organize it. But then later, you were writing about how in the civil rights movement, a lot of sort of black activists excised the sort of cooperative language from their from their work and their speeches and their writings, because it would get them painted as communists right. in the McCarthy era. So then, right, by the, by the 50s with the McCarthy era, right, they also had to purge the language because, you know, my research did find there were black organizations that used the word co-op, the Young Negroes Cooperative League right. in the 1930s, in the 1880s, the Colored Farmers National Alliance and Cooperative Union. So there were places, right? right? Definitely by the 50s and 60s, though, there was much less use of the word cooperative. Um, it's really one of the interesting things I found was that the founding actually, and here they did end up using the word cooperative, but it's not to the late sixties, the founding of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, uh, in the South in 1967, the meeting 
that was pulled together where they put in two big grants to create this regional association was actually attended by members of almost every civil rights organization at that time. But none of them, right, but none of them had co-ops in their political platforms. None of them made speeches about co-ops, but they understood and realized that we couldn't get far enough with civil rights if we didn't also have economic justice. And so they realized that they needed to follow what was already happening, right? There were already co-ops being developed all throughout the U.S., especially in the South, but they needed support. And so they came together and agreed to help support this regional organization. But did again, quietly, nobody really knows that they were all at that meeting. In fact, it took a couple of interviews for me rather than paperwork to find out that all those organizations were represented there, that kind of thing. And then when I talked to some civil rights people, they actually said, yeah, no, we didn't talk about the economics. One, we didn't want to be painted as communists. And there wasn't as much agreement about the economic stuff. There was more agreement about voting rights and political legal rights. There wasn't as much agreement. Some people still wanted to try capitalism and that kind of thing. Right. If capitalism is good enough for white people, we can participate in that too. We We don't want alternatives. We want to be in the mainstream. Anyway, so he said, yeah, so it was easier to just forget about the economics and just focus on the politics. But yet they understood that the economics was important. So quietly they helped support some stuff. So it's, it's, you know, it's another really interesting connection to how, right, how sometimes I tell people, you know, I can tell you the whole long civil rights history through the co-op movement (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it it paralleled it, but oftentimes it wasn't spoken, right? Well, it wasn't the figure, but it was the ground of the whole thing. Right, it was the roots and the ground. Right. What was the real activity of the Panthers? Schools for kids, lunches, clothes for women so they could get work. Um, Right. And the Panthers had a whole solidarity economic system. Right. They collected money to pay for the food. They they ended up having some shoe factories and uh, some bakery co-ops. They had a co-op newspaper so that they could earn some money. They did co-housing. So they had a whole solidarity economic system to do their community programs. You know, and they were defending, right? The community programs were all about defense from state violence. It wasn't just police brutality they were were trying to address. They were trying to address state violence using cooperative economic solidarity economics. Right. And it predated, you know, Mondragon and all, I mean, not that Mondragon's bad, Mondragon's great, but it predated all of these supposedly, you know, original cooperative movements. It was, it was already happening. Uh, Yes. We had a continuous history from, you know, the 1500s when black people were first brought here. And I, I do have a little pet peeve about using 1619 as the first moment of the first blacks in U.S. soil because actually the Spanish brought blacks and enslaved them into North America in the 1530s um, in Florida. And, of course, part of Mexico is part of the U.S. and the Spanish had enslaved, enslaved blacks in part of Mexico Actually, the first enslaved blacks that the Spanish brought were in a small town, in, which is now South Carolina. Um, and that was, as I said, I think 1535 or something. So that's when I talk, talk about the first 
blacks, the first Africans being on U.S. soil. And then, of course, some people say the Africans brought themselves to North and South America, you know, in the 11th century on can- in canoes or something. When the continents were closer or something. <laughs> right, yes, <laughs> you want to talk about. But if we want to talk about the colonial and enslavement of blacks, right, it didn't just start in 1619. That's when the British first brought them. But right. colonialism didn't start with the British. Yeah, the Spanish were more than happy. Yeah, and the Portuguese brought more blacks, but they just brought them to Brazil. So the Portuguese brought more blacks than anybody across the the ocean. But anyway, even when we think of colonialism, we think of just the British Empire because it was the most recent and the largest. But I think it's important to recognize that colonialism itself, not any one European country, you know. Right. And different styles of colonialism and imperialism, too. And while yeah. it's certainly not as extreme, we're not being physically beaten and raped and, and killed and lynched and all. I feel like people like me anyway, or worse than me, you know, the real tech bros out there and the white dudes and all are finally seeing, oh, wait a minute, with all this digital capitalism, we're kind of colonizing ourselves now. They're getting a virtual taste of what is it like not to own your own time, not to own your own data, not to own yourself, you know, so which is why I feel like your work and, and, and the work of those of us who are celebrating these uh, uh, original human styles of economic cooperation it's becoming more attractive. It's not looked at so much as a cop-out for people who can't make it right. in capitalism, but it's like, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to sell my soul. Yeah, and I do see that more and more, right? People are making this conscious choice. I mean, it's still, some people are still left out of the economy and the economy doesn't work for them. And so they're trying to find alternatives, but there's definitely more of a conscious choice right? Yes. I don't want to sell my soul. I don't want to be dehumanized, right? I want to make sure even in my economic life, I'm a full human being and operating with other full human beings. And so there is, there's a growing movement of that. There's a growing recognition, right? That we don't have to give up the notion of prosperity in order to practice alternatives, right? That alternatives can also create prosperity. And and as you said, I had some really interesting um, examples through history of how the communities did so much better when they had a co-op system, especially at least a co-op store, but often they combined a co-op store with a credit union, with other co-op activities. Um, and there's great stories. There was a co-op in Virginia in, uh, 1901 that lasted for 20 years. And the, the researcher that I found there, talked about how much better the whole community was. The whole standard of living for all the blacks in that county went up. But it also seems like the when, when a black person got wealthy, they had a different approach toward what we think of as charity than uh, traditionally white people in America did. Yeah. Like my dad knew people who got rich and then they would open a wing of a hospital with their name on it, which is a nice thing, but it kind of stops there. Whereas the stories you're telling about wealthy black people, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to create a different kind of bank that gives, lo- I'm going to figure out how to continue my wealth to other people. To give back more. Also, you know, even black capitalist businesses hire more black people than right. other businesses. So there is this notion of hiring 
spreading the wealth, giving back to community, creating more opportunity, right? Creating new and more, right? So some right. of the um, the banks you're talking about actually started with fraternal organizations, but then they realized the whole community needed banking and they created a community bank and then, a, you know, a co-op store. and Right. And they have a community bank. Even if they have capital, they're not allowed to invest in the same things that the white banks invested right. in. So, right. oh, we got to invest in our community in our own, that instead. Right. Yeah. And it, goes back in and then it recycles which is the other nice thing it, it keeps the money recycling even the um, brotherhood of sleeping car porters right our mm-hmm. first official uh, 20th century black independent trade union right they had that same notion right it's not good enough that we now have good union jobs and are bringing in middle class incomes for our families we need to recirculate that money in the black community and so they started talking about and training their members, especially the ladies auxiliary to the brotherhood, that's the wives and the maids in, in, the, in the union. They started training themselves about cooperatives and trying to start cooperatives because they wanted to use their money to better the community and to keep it recirculating in the community, not right, just get good wages and then let it just go out. Right. And it's like, because you have your neighbors. So if you're in the union and you're doing well and you're getting benefits, but you've got three neighbors on your block who aren't, right. that's not a fun life to right. live. Right. Right. And your children have to marry somebody. I hate to put it right. that bluntly, but... <laughs> yeah. You know, so you do, you know, you care about your neighbors, you care about the future. That's the other thing that's important. Well, if you have time to think about the future, right. you know, which, right. which, which starts. Then there was another example I didn't fully understand of these women who were like, they were knitters or, the and quilters. then they, yeah, and then they bought land yeah. and then let people live on or work on the land. So how did that, how did that happen? Yeah, that's another fabulous example of this, right? The, the, how, re, right, how things recirculate and how one crop right. can help other things happen. So these are sharecropping women. I think your audience knows what sharecropping was, right? Blacks who couldn't own land had to rent uh, from a white, usually the same person who had been in a slaveholding family or whatever, but they're now renters instead of enslaved. And this happened all the way through the 1960s, so it didn't right. just happen right after the Civil War. But sharecropping is uh, debt peonage. You just continue, you know, the situation is that you don't have any money even for supplies and things, so you buy it from the the landowner's supply store, and then he gouges you for that, and then you have to sell your harvest to the same person and they gouge you for that and when you come out in the end you still owe and so you have to stay in it for the next year and you get into more and more debt so actually it was a it was a minister who saw some of the quilts that the women did over the winter when they weren't farming and he said you know what i think i can sell these quilts and he actually took them up north sold them brought them back the money and they were like oh we could make a business out of this they created a co-op, a sewing co-op, and for the first couple of years, they sewed from home like they always do, but then they realized that it would be more efficient if they could have a sewing factory. So they had enough money. They bought 23 acres of land. They built the sewing factory, but now they're not working from home anymore, so what do they do with their children? So then they added a, a child care center, an after-school program, a summer reading program, and open not just to their own children, but the children in the whole neighborhood, in the neighboring towns. So they're doing, right, so they're doing sewing, they have their own factory, they have land, they have programs for their families, right? They're doing better, they're augmenting their lives. This is the late 1960s, the voting rights movement is here, they all go to register to vote. Well, guess what? 
in the South in particular, when you tried to register to vote in the 60s, um, you often were retaliated against. And the, the easiest way to retaliate against you is to fire you from your job or throw you off the land if you're a, a sharecropper. So now some of the families are being thrown off their property because they registered to vote or sometimes because they went to a civil rights rally. Um, and so then there's back to this, right? Capitalism is so debilitating, right? Um, and they can use it to retaliate against you for something that has nothing to do with your job or what you were, what the capitalist relationship was. So luckily, again, this quilting bee, the um, freedom quilting bee, they called themselves, they had extra land. So they ended up, they sold a couple of acres to some farmers who had some money and could buy them. And then they also rented to some of the farmers who had been evicted. Um, and so that independence, the fact, right, they had money, they had their own land, they had an out, a separate income from the exploitative income that was happening in their area, enabled them to then help other people to gain that same kind of independence to get out of that um, debt peonage system. So again, it's that recycling, re, right, the power control that you get over being in this cooperative relationship allows you to help not only your family and your friends, your neighbors, and change the relationships. Yeah. I mean, in my work, I've been calling it bounded economics to sort of to sort of contrast it to scale. You know, digital wants scale and to just keep growing. And a bounded is not a bad thing. You know, it's just because then the the, the money starts moving almost like a Dyson vacuum cleaner. Right. It recirculates. It creates a, 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 a momentum. The thing with bounded systems, like you're saying, though, is they can interact with other bounded systems. So you right. can still get scale. Keep network control, scale though. you keep yeah. the control local you can get scale by the what we call federations or interlocking systems right value chains value supply chains so one bounded system can supply another bounded system things like that so there's right. lots of ways i know a lot of people kind of get upset about scale and they're like well these are all just tiny small things but we don't have to worry about that if we think about multiple small things, working with each other and supporting each other, you can get right. to scale in that kind of way. Even if you look at, right, even something as silly as, say, Ace Hardware Chain. Right. You know, it's these locally owned hardware stores, but they have collective buying power exactly. so they can compete with Home Depot on prices yep. on their on their things. Right. Exactly. It's not yep. rocket science. That's the example. <laughs> That's what keeps happening as I read. It's not rocket science, but it tends to require not a charismatic leader or something, but somebody, most of your examples, there's some woman, some man that kind of says, hey guys, do this. Or someone who takes a bunch of teenagers as or, or high school students as mentees and says, come on, young men, you're going to work this way, not that way. I, but, you know. So you do sometimes need a catalyst right. or a charismatic leader. Um, that's true. But the other thing that I found, it wasn't just the charismatic leaders. It was the fact that they pooled together and learned together. So the other thing I found that was prevalent in almost every example I found was that they started with some kind of study circle, study group. So even if it was one person who said, let's meet and talk about this, the rest of the effort after that, the rest of the history was made because of the group. And that learning together, working together, learning together makes a huge difference. That's another way to build solidarity, to build trust, 
to build that the building blocks of strength that you need to really cooperate and to make collective decisions together starts with that learning together. And so that's another piece that I found really important. That's interesting because I was going to ask you toward the end, but might as well do it now. You know, you know, how might examples of black cooperativism be used to help the rest of America as we try to repair, you know, the ravages of neoliberalism. And one of them, I mean, a great thing for team human people is just just go on meetup or something and just find the others. Start and to talk and learn together. A study group is yeah. so, that's doable. You know, in other words, it's like, you know, you don't have to start an alternative currency today. Right. <laughs> just start a yeah. study group. And it's doable during COVID. Because right. that's what we have time for. We have time to read. We have time to have, you know, uh, even if we can't do Zoom, we could do a telephone call, multiple, right, conference call with other people, even if you just talk to one or two other people to start with. But it's something, because that's the other thing people keep saying, well, we can't do any of this with COVID, but actually we can. Better than ever now. And even, I mean, if they pass another $2 trillion bill, another $600 a week, right. as long as you need it. That's right. subsidized education. And now is the time, especially since we can't do a lot of the other stuff we did, now's the time to be studying together and on our own and to be thinking through getting comfortable. Because I think for me, the saddest part of all this is how alienated we've become from solidarity economics and cooperative economics, that we see it so, right, oh, we either don't do it or we can't do it or we don't know how to do it or it's not as good as capitalism or it's communism, God forbid, you know, we're so alienated from the concepts. We've got to just remake ourselves more comfortable again, right? We've got to remember, as I said, that we're doing, we're practicing solidarity economics all the time. We just don't, we haven't called it that. We don't think of it that way. Yeah, Rianne Eisler's stuff is good for that. You know, she wrote these books on all the, the economic activity that's not on the books. Right. Like, what is it worth for a mother to teach her child to be toilet trained? Right. You know? right. <laughs> it's $723,000. Right. And it's actually an economic, I mean, it's a social activity, but it's also an economic activity because that child can't go to school, can't be a productive worker, right. can't do anything else if they're not potty trained. You know, and I'm sorry, I'm an economist, so sometimes we talk about economic economics too, literally, but I'm just saying, you know, it's real. It's part it's, of it. It's part of it. Right. It's not, an, it's not a mere externality, you know, right. it's, it's, it's right. it. And do you think, you know, the, the COVID creates a certain amount of, of readiness. Do you think that there's a, a commonality, I guess, or, or something going on here when we, on the one hand, we have people willing to talk about cooperative and collaborative economics. On the other hand, we have people finally talking, I think, about race in America in a way that maybe is more real, that, that may actually accomplish something. And that we see at the same time, um, a show like The Watchmen, which I know wasn't perfect in any way, but do you know how many people, when I talk about your book, they say, oh yeah, I saw in The Watchmen, you know, how they, the, the <laughs> town, but you know, there's a town in, in Tulsa that got, that got uh, uh, massacred because right. they had economic, you know, the Black Wall Street. Do you feel like there's a, a, a something in the zeitgeist, a different kind of a readiness to, to, and I hate to use a word like this, but to integrate economics, race, and cooperativism in a way that we weren't before? You know, I think so. I certainly have been more in demand, I guess, for talking about my work, you know, since March than ever before. 
you know, maybe when my book first came out in 2014, it's close to that level of demand, but I think it's probably even more than that. So there's clearly, right, the people who are already were thinking about economic alternatives and co-ops and solidarity economy want the race piece because they realize they haven't quite got the race piece right. So they're asking me for that. Then there's the blacks who have the race piece, but they're trying to figure out how do we do the more human economics and can it even be applied to, you know, abolition, you know, current police abolition and um, anti-police brutality, right? So I've got people trying to figure out that part. I've got other blacks who are realizing that the economy, right, it's just not working and they don't want to have to work in that kind of a system. So they want alternatives. So it seems like this, there's a congruence. And then, of course, on the public health side, people are realizing if we had actually had universal health care and if we had nonprofit co-op health insurance or whatever, we would also be doing much better. Right. And so I think from all sides, right economics, the health, the social, people are saying, okay, there's got to be a better way. Is there a way that we can combine, right? All these things that are bombarding us, right? Instead of trying to piecemeal. Right. Or they're incompetent. You know, I was, I was saddened by, you know, both the, 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 if it was the Bernie campaign sort of blind spot to the African American experience. And at the same time, the hostility of, you know, certain black activists to the Bernie thing, because, well, Bernie's asking for universal economic justice, and we need black particular economic justice, then you get in fights between, you know, white progressives and intersectionalists. And it seems to me that these are not either or, that these are very much yes, and concerns. Right. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm not going to talk about politics. But I do, I do agree with you. It's yes. And and um, I'm hoping, I hope that, you know, my research and the way I talk about these things help people to see that. I mean, I very much also believe in understanding intersectionality, right? It's not even just black people in general, right? Or, or black and brown people in general. It's also black and brown women. It's also black and brown uh, LGBTQ plus people, right? It's, I mean, there's just so many intersectionalities and we have to to me, that's why I keep talking about humanists, right? Because to me, the human, our humanity is about all those intersections. And we have to figure out how, right, how our economics can recognize and provide dignity for all those intersections. And that's where, again, this, you know, my, my understanding and my research on cooperatives and solidarity economics and I really like to combine them, solidarity, cooperative economics or whatever, mm-hmm. try, I think, try to give us a way to recognize human dignity in everybody and see that we can have economic democracy and economic justice for everybody, but we have to be very deliberate about it. That's also my new statement, especially to liberal groups that think they're okay and aren't comfortable facing their racism, Right. You know, we really need to be deliberate. We need to be sure that we understand it's not just about diversity and inclusion. That's not that doesn't take us far enough, right? Those are just baby steps. 
and that we have to we have to really think hard about what happens in our everyday interactions and take those same values that we think we have for economics about non-hierarchy, human dignity, uh, support for the least among us, whatever it is, we've got to apply that even to the social relationships and notice when we're not applying it. Right. I mean, it is true. If you're trying to run humanity on an extractive, growth-based, exploitative, slave-owning economic operating system, you're going to end up with inhuman behaviors. Right. There's just no way around it. No, there's no way around it. But even when you start to dismantle that, if you don't do it deliberately with understanding about all the isms and oppressions that we practice, you're not going to change a whole lot either. Like maybe you'll have a co-op, but the black people still won't feel comfortable in it. Or you'll still make assumptions about what food or cultural things you should have in the co-op that, you know, that are very disrespectful to some groups, that kind of thing. So that's the other piece of it, right? It takes a lot to just dismantle the capitalist system, but then to rebuild the system we really want. We have to make sure not to reproduce the institutional racism, right? Not to allow the stereotypes that come so naturally to all of us, right? We have to, that's the other part of deliberateness, I mean. We have to really examine ourselves so that we don't bring that baggage, right? Somebody calls it an invisible backpack of privilege and right? We, we have to make sure not to bring that baggage into the new structures. And it's not simple. It's not just because we changed the structure and got rid of capitalism. And it's not even just good intention. Right. You know? <laughs> right. However nice it is to have. Right. It's not, a, it's not enough. It's just not enough. And so that, you know, and so then people get, oh man, this is going to be hard or whatever. But you know what? Life is hard. I'm sorry. Right. Right. Retrieving, <laughs> retrieving your humanity it's is a hard. full-time job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard. And if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's not half, uh, whatever. I guess I can't use that word. No, no let's not do it halfway. That's half, all right. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. Yeah, you are. You're allowed to say anything here. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, but you know, it's easier and more fun if we do it together. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> like right. everything. Yeah. And we make it fun. I mean, that's the other thing. This stuff is supposed to be fun, too. It's not just supposed to be hard. We're supposed to laugh and dance and sing. And definitely, right. I think that's the other thing that first drew me to cooperatives and stuff is that we didn't have to do it alone, right? Two heads are better than one. Five, you know, five voices are stronger than one, right? And it can be fun because it's part of us as social beings too, right? That we can come together and do these things together, learn from each other, have fun together as we're breaking down other systems and rebuilding systems. And the the idea about rebuilding, right? Because I also just got tired of us always criticizing, right? And not having solutions. And even if the solutions aren't perfect, right? We all know what the problems are. Let's just, let's move to the solutions. <laughs> well, and the solutions are processes. You know, these are living processes. They're not end states. Right. You know, and so many of them, I mean, so many of them are laid out. This, you know, collective courage is, a, is really a set of blueprints for reclaiming our humanity, reclaiming our communities, and rebuilding our economies in ways that promote our, our universal social justice, you know? 
I hope so. Thank you for saying it that way. I'll have to re-listen to the podcast so I can start <laughs> using that language. That sounds great. Thank oh, you. Oh, please. I'm using yours every day. <laughs> you deserve any piece of mine. You're welcome to it. So thank you so much for being on Team Human. I, I felt like I found a gold mine um, in you. And, oh, thanks. Uh, thanks. I trust that the that 50,000 some odd people listening to this are as inspired by you and your work as I am and that they will pursue collective courage. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice, Professor Jessica Gordon Nembhard. You can find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a member of the team. Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin, edited by Luke Robert Mason, and our community manager is Michael Bass. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Go vote.